there are two things you need to know about Jeff Greenwald in order to understand this story. The first is that he has always had this feeling, this vision, that at some point in his travels, be it Cleveland, Ohio, or trekking the Himalayas, at some point, he was going to find a gold ring. And it'll have a really special significance because when I find this gold ring, I'll put it on my finger and I'll know that it's a message from the powers that be that my spiritual quest has come to fruition, that I've found what I'm looking for in the spiritual realm. So that's point one, gold ring. Put that in your head. Lock that in. All right. Item number two in our prelude is... What happened to Jeff when he went to the Ajanta Caves in Aurangabad, India? The Ajanta Caves were built between 200 and 650 AD. And there's about 20 caves in all filled with paintings that because of the the darkness and the closed nature of the caves are preserved and look almost as gorgeous as they did when they were first painted almost 2,000 years ago. So I went down to Ajanta and I'm wandering through the caves and I'm looking at all these scenes painted on the wall. And these are scenes from what are called the Jataka Tales. And the Jataka Tales are as well known in India and in Asia as the Walt Disney stories are are known here in, in the U.S. These are the stories of Buddha's past life. Because before Buddha was the Buddha, he had a life of every kind of animal and insect that you can imagine. He was a deer, he was the king of the monkeys, he was a fish, he was a a meditator in in a cave somewhere in the mountains, he was a bird, he was every kind of animal and creature you could imagine. And these stories tell all the different tales of the wonderful things that the being that would become Buddha accomplished in his past lives. So I was walking from room to room in the Ajanta cave temples, actually walking from cave to cave because there are all the rooms are caves that were carved from the living rock. And I came into this one room and there was a mural on the wall. And it was a mural of a scene from the actual life of Buddha where Buddha has decided to renounce everything. He's, he rode his horse to the river Anoma and he met a woodcutter there. He traded clothes with a woodcutter, cut off all of his hair. The Buddha cut off his long royal locks of hair and then put on the woodcutter's simple clothes, said farewell to the horse and crossed the river and began his quest to become the awakened one. And I looked at this scene of all the characters in this scene as Buddha's about to leave and renounce the world. And I looked at the imagery and I suddenly recognized myself in one of the characters in that mural. And this wasn't just a casual sense of, oh, I knew who that was. It was this absolutely overwhelming sense that I saw myself. I saw who I had been 2,500 years ago during the lifetime of the Buddha. You, the skeptic, were skeptical no longer. You recalled your past life. The scales had fallen from your eyes and you remembered what happened 2,500 years before when you were with the Buddha. I still thought reincarnation was a load of hooey. (laughs) But I couldn't deny that having seen this image and having recognized myself in this mural, this flood of memories had come back to me. And boom, Jeff's life changed forever. 
I didn't know what to do with it. It really worked against my whole worldview. The impact was so gigantic that a few weeks later, as soon as I got back to the United States, I began writing down all these memories that spontaneously arose to me from that lifetime. I remembered everything that had happened to me during those years, 25 centuries ago, and I wrote in great detail about my relationship with the characters in that scene and what it had felt like to be on the banks of the River Enoma that afternoon so long ago. That's item number two. So to sum up, one, Jeff will someday find a gold ring and his purpose will be revealed. And two, Jeff saw himself crossing the river with the Buddha in a painting in the Ajanta Caves in India. So that's two things, but actually there's a third one. And it involves a deal Jeff made with his friend Sally. And we had an agreement. If one of us ever found the Buddha anywhere in our travels, we would let the other person know the other one would drop everything and come out to see if this were true. We would actually not even to see if it were true. We would take the other friend at their word. If Sally ever called me and said, Jeff, I've met the Buddha. You have to come. I would go. And that's exactly what happened. Sally called me in 1993. She was in Lucknow, India and said, I've met this guy. His name is Papaji. He's the real thing. I want you to come out here. You can't miss it. And I dropped what I was doing, and I got on a plane, and I flew to Delhi, and then I took the train to Ooh, Lucknow. she better not have been messing around. If you're going to go all that way, <laughs> she had better come correct with the goods. You want to see Buddha. She only had one chance to get this right. She couldn't ask me twice to come see the Buddha. She could only do it once. And this is when she decided to do it. Drop everything. I found the Buddha. So I arrived in this little town of Indiranagar, and I met Sally. And she started telling me about this guru she had found. And his name, his real name was Harilal Punja, though he went by the nickname of Papaji. Everyone called him Papaji. And as I got to know more about this, this, this fellow, I realized that he really did pass all the kind of internal tests I had for a great spiritual leader. He never accepted any money from any of his followers. He would only accept flowers or candy or books of poetry. He lived in a simple house on a dusty corner in Indiranagar and drove a little Maruti minivan around. Uh, he had wonderful relationships with his disciples, but he didn't have any what you'd call improper relationships. He was a big strapping guy who'd been a wrestler, and some people told me that during the 1940s he had even been something of a terrorist, blowing up trains and fighting for Punjabi independence. Every morning at about 10, Papaji would give what he called satsang, truth saying, where he would sit in a room with his 100 or 200 or 300 followers, whoever was there that day, and he would read letters from the audience, and he would advise people what to do based on their predicament. Not only did he give wonderful advice, but Papaji had this great gift that you find in some of the real spiritual masters in India. He could do this technique, uh, I believe it's called Nirdir Dakshina, enlightening with the eyes. All your cares would melt away, and in that instant of, of, of engagement with him, you would see all the way through, and you would become enlightened in an instant. This 
finger-snap enlightenment with the eyeballs was something that Papaji had mastered, and I watched as one devotee after another went up on stage and had their questions answered, and some, for the lucky few, Papaji would look them in the eye, and they would break down into spontaneous laughter or throw their arms in the air and, and start just, just singing out of this sheer feeling of jubilation of having been even momentarily liberated. There are many wonderful stories about things that Papaji did uh, when people wrote him letters. One, one particular story really stands in my mind. It was a woman who really wanted to stay in Indiranagar and study with Papaji, but she had this terrible, crippling phobia of dogs. Now, if you've ever been to India, you know that the streets are, are full of dogs, and some of them are very gentle, of course, but others can be unpredictable. And if you have a fear of dogs, just walking to your, your flat at night or walking out to breakfast in the morning can be an extremely harrowing experience. And the woman wrote a note to Papaji and went up on stage and started to talk to him about it. So Papaji read her letter and he said, uh, hmm, you have a fear of dogs. It's very inconvenient here in India. I have an idea, but I can't really do anything for you right now. Come back tomorrow. And when the woman came in the next day, uh, Papaji called her up onto the stage, onto the dais where he sat, and he gave her a box. And inside the box was a newborn puppy for her to raise. And I remember just looking at it, looking at him and looking at the expression on that woman's face and thinking, this guy is like King Solomon. He really is an enlightened master. After I'd been at the um, satsang for two or three days, maybe it was a week, some of uh, Papaji's closest followers came up and, and, and surrounded me as I sat in the lunchroom eating some rice and curry. And they said, Sally tells us that you're a journalist from the United States. And I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a writer and journalist. I've written some books and I, I do a lot of interviews. And they said, well, we have a proposition for you. Papaji has said that he would like to do a video interview uh, that will be shown on Indian television. It would take about two hours. We need somebody who's willing to ask him really, you know, really um, probing questions and be on camera for this period of time. Would you be comfortable being that interviewer? And I thought to myself, wow, what an honor. This is, this is great. And I turned to him and I said, I'd love to do it. Let me come up with a sheet of questions. So Jeff started writing questions, probing every rumor. Was it true, really true, that Papa G used to be a professional wrestler? Was he really a Punjabi freedom fighter? All the questions amounted to really one single question for Papa G. Who are you? Jeff Greenwald was ready. The stage was set for an interview with the man thousands of followers believed to be the living Buddha. I walked into the Zatsang Hall the next evening. And the place was just packed. There were three video cameras set up with uh, technicians standing around each one. The stage was awash in lighting and covered with flowers. All of Papaji's devotees had brought him bouquets of flowers, which were all over the stage, making it look like, like a, more of a wedding than, a, than an interview. And we sat down together, facing each other, and I began asking him questions about himself and his life. And he laughed, and he, he turned to the audience, and he played so well off the questions, and he was so clear, and I was just sitting there thinking to myself, this is amazing. How did I ever get lucky enough to be into this situation where I'm sitting there interviewing a living Buddha in front of hundreds of people? What kind of weird karma has led me to this moment? 
And uh, I was asking Papaji about one of the main questions that haunts spiritual seekers, which is, how do you take what you've learned in a, in a spiritual context? How do you, you take the lessons that you get from a spiritual master and bring them into the real world? It's so hard to, to live a life as a layperson and yet really try to have any kind of spiritual orientation. And in answer to the question, Papaji turned to me and he started telling me a story. And I was surprised because it was actually the exact same story that I had seen 10 years ago in that mural in the Ajanta Caves. It was the exact same story of how the Buddha, when he decided to reach the awakened state, had had to leave his palace at Kapilavastu and ride his horse to the river Enoma, cut off his hair, get rid of his clothes, and abandon everything. And, and uh, Papaji just stood there describing the whole scene in amazing detail, just as it had been in that mural in Ajanta. And then he leaned over and he put his hand over the microphone and Papaji leaned over to my ear and he looked him in the eye and he said to me, I think you remember. I think we were there. And he fixed me with his gaze. And at that moment, it was as if the entire fabric of space-time unraveled like a sweater caught on a thorn bush. For a split second that expanded into an unknown amount of time, all of eternity seemed like one moment. And I saw my life not as, a, not as just, a, not as, just as, as, as myself, as Jeff sitting there in the chair. I saw every place I had ever been and everyone I had ever known as if it had happened at the same instant. And I looked into Papaji's eyes and I, I knew that I had known him for centuries, that he had been there at the banks of the river Enoma with me when he had been the Buddha and I had been his horse. What? His horse. It seemed that we stared at each other's eyes forever, but I must have blacked out. Something must have happened, because the next thing I remember is Papaji's hand on my shoulder, shaking me, shaking me, saying, come back, come back, we have an interview to finish. And everyone in the satsang hall laughing and rocking back and forth, and the, the lights in my eyes, and Papaji laughing, and his hand on my shoulder. And I opened my eyes, and that moment, that instant, was somehow gone, and yet I knew it would always be with me for the rest of my life. After the interview ended and the cameras started to roll away, Papaji and I left the stage. He was immediately surrounded by his hundreds of followers, all of whom just, just hugging him and holding him, tears rolling down their cheeks, telling him how profound the interview had been and how much it had moved them. I walked out alone, and uh, as I walked through the hall and out of the satsang and into the street, I heard a voice behind me calling, wait, wait, Jeff, please wait. And I turned around and there was a man, a very beautiful looking man who I knew as Thomas, who had been to many of the satsangs with me. And I hadn't really ever spoke to him, but now he looked at me in a way that just seemed so intimate that I, I'd really never experienced anything like it. And he walked up to me and he said, Jeff, he said, you and I have never really met before. But as you were up there speaking with Papaji, I realized that for many, many years and many lives, you and I have been brothers. And to make that clear, he said, to tell you that I'm, to show you that I'm, I'm absolutely certain that this is true, I have something to give you. And he reached one hand into the other and pulled off the gold ring he was wearing on his finger, and he handed it to me. I can't take this, I said. You have to take it, he said. It already belongs to you. If you don't want it, just leave it on the ground.
but it's yours and has always been yours from the moment I saw it. I took the ring and I looked at it and I understood what it meant. And the ring, Glenn, remains on my finger. That's the ring. This is the ring. That's it. Wow. Jeff Greenwald, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Greenwald. He's the author of several books, including his most recent, Snake Lake. And Jeff is currently performing his one-man show, Strange Travel Suggestions, at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. I can't think of a better way to spend a night out. Hey, Snappers, if you text the number 20222, that's who you're texting. Text them one word, SNAP. You'll get a message back from our partner, PRX. Text back, yes. And just like that, you've given us 10 bucks. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks.